book of God. That's what John Wesley called the Bible, the book of God. Well, we know it to be the scriptures, we know it to be the word of God, we know it to be the Bible, but it's indeed God's great revelation to mankind. Those that will receive it, those that reject it, God has put a revelation between two covers and says, read this, understand this, and wonderful things will be revealed to you. And of course, he's given us the very, very author of the book, the very Holy Spirit, to be able to interpret and to bring to light what may have been hidden mysteries to us as we read the Bible. The Spirit of God comes and opens the eyes of our understanding. And many Christians will say time and time and time again, wow, you know what I've just seen? And yet I've read that so many times before. This is the illuminating power of the Spirit, the Spirit of God who will lead you into all truth. I can assure you before we switch on the microphone here and do our podcast, we're praying that the Spirit of God will take the simple Word of God and apply it to many human hearts, yours included. Well, where are we going today? We're going back to our theme, which is when he comes again. What kind of people will he be coming for? Well, in the last couple of podcasts, we've seen that he's coming for his people Israel. And in the first instance, in the first part of the second coming, he comes for his church. Wonderful, wonderful truths. And we turn to the Ephesian letter. Oh, how much we love to go into Ephesians. It just has so many themes and so many rivulets from the main theme, which is man's redemption. And there are streams that flow out from that and flow into it. And we're going to look at one of those streams today. The Bible tells us that Christ and the Father have a motivation in sending the Son back to earth. And we know that the bride and the Spirit of God are crying out, even so come Lord Jesus. Well, we're going to go and look at the first chapter of Ephesians, and we'll see it here, that he has made known to us, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. That's verse 9, chapter 1. The mystery of his will. I think every believer somewhere along the line really seeks God for the will of God in their own lives. And it becomes very apparent over a period of time what God wants from our lives, what he wants in our lives, what he wants for our lives. If we're not careful, we become obsessed and absolutely absorbed in the will of God and me. But God has a broader will, a greater purpose, a more comprehensive desire than just what he has for you and what he has for me as individuals. You see, the Bible says that the will 
of God as depicted, as shared very minutely in Ephesians is that he takes two streams of people and he unites them as one. Now, who are those two very different people? To cut right to the chase, let's look at it. Israel is one of those streams of humanity, and the Gentiles is the other stream. And you know that on the face of the earth, there are only two people's groups. Oh, you thought there were a million of them, didn't you? But there are only two. They are uh, Jews and Gentiles. And in Christ, and only in Christ, they become one. And this is the key of Ephesians. Can I just let you into a few little secrets about Ephesus? Ephesus can still be visited today up there in the northern part of Turkey. I've been to Ephesus many times, and it was a tremendous key city in the ancient world, a city of commerce, a city that was by and large Gentile, but it had a very strong Jewish population there as well. And you know how the Apostle Paul went there. You know how things happened there that was quite wonderful. And while there was opposition, there was a move of the Spirit of God. Now, the Ephesians were a sophisticated people. The Gentiles were people of great, I suppose you'd say, expertise in commerce. It was a wealthy city. It was right on the shore of the Mediterranean. So many times the boats from all over the known world would come and they would buy and sell and do all their commerce in Ephesus. It had a beautiful main street that you can still walk down today. It was made of marble. And there was the library on one side, which they have uh, re-erected because there was a massive earthquake and what they've done, they've rebuilt the place as much as they can to keep it authentic. And you can walk down that main street today, the street that the Apostle Paul would have walked down. And you will find all kinds of curious places to stop and look at. And if you've got a good guide, they will give you insight into the lifestyles of the rich, the famous, and the infamous. It was an immoral city, as many of the cities of the ancient world were. It was a cosmopolitan city. A lot of Jews, a lot of Gentiles, and a lot of Gentiles from various parts of the known world. But it was into Ephesus that a real move of the Spirit of God came, and a church was birthed. A church that was a remarkable church because it was sadly split down the middle between Jewish believers and non-Jewish, that is, Gentile believers. And there was a, a bit of division between the two. We read all about that by innuendo and by very, very definite phrases that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. He makes a very profound statement 
well, he makes many of them, but he talks a lot to the Ephesians that they really are one body born of one spirit, and they have one universal hope and one universal calling. You find that in the fourth chapter. And Paul starts in verse 1 by saying to the church, I, a prisoner of the Lord, because he was in prison at that time, and this forms one of the prison epistles, he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Now, he's not only talking about you know, getting away from the licentious life, the, the immoral life they once lived. He says, no, 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 not only that, but I want you to live, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, we read from that, and we understand from that, that there must have been friction and tension and a sense of pulling against one another, and of course, some spiritual pride. But Paul's very keen, though he was in the past an Orthodox Jew, an observant Jew, a committed Jew, committed to the law, committed to the temple, committed to all the practices of the temple and the worship of the temple. Now, being in Christ, he's a new creature. And while those things aren't disregarded, they are not the focal point they used to be. And so he's saying, look, the Lord has brought in to the family of God this stream of Gentile believers And those that are of Israel, the Jewish believers, have a bit of a tendency to look down their noses at their Gentile brothers and sisters. And so he goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit. That means one universal body of which we're both a part. One universal spirit. The spirit is as active with the Gentile believers as he is with the Jewish believers. Just as you were called with one universal hope of your calling. And the Lord is one Lord. That is one Lord over both, Jew and Gentile. One spirit working in both. Just as you were called with one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above you all and through you all and in you all. Well, that's pretty conclusive, isn't it? You can't get much better than that. In other words, the God that is working in you as a Jewish believer and working in me as a Gentile believer has made us both one. And to each of us, verse 7, chapter 4 of Ephesians, to each of us has been given grace. Each one of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we are both recipients, receivers 
of this divine favor that we call redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you came the way, the only way, through the cross, the way, the truth, and the life, the Son of the living God. And so he's longing to see them being in unity. And when we go back to chapter 1, he says that the whole motivation of Christ's coming will be, in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he will gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on the earth, all in him. In him also we have together obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has been working in Jews and Gentiles, bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they may know him whom to know is life eternal. How wonderful that is. So if you're a Jew and you've come to Christ, and I'm a Gentile and I've come to Christ, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And our expectation is that he's going to come, he's going to gather the saints that have gone before, he's going to gather those saints in the four corners of the earth, and we're all going to be gathered together as one. Amazing, isn't it? Now we're going to go back into Matthew's gospel. Matthew 25. Now this is part of the what is called the Olivet Discourse, because it was given, one would imagine, on the Mount of Olives. That's according to theologians. And it begins in chapter 23, chapter 24, and concludes at the end of chapter 25. It's all about the second coming. It's all about the return of the Lord. Now, we have a lot of different little parables, some very emphatic statements, but a lot of vivid stories that have a parable inside of them, a meaning, a central meaning that God wants to make very real to us. And he talks in the 25th chapter in parables mainly, and he talks about some of the things that God will insist on when Christ comes again. For instance, he talks about in the first portion the parable of the wise virgins and the foolish ones. Now, they all look the same. They all act the same. They all say they are looking for the bridegroom. And they all claim to be his followers. They claim to love him and want to be part of the welcoming committee when the cry goes up that he has arrived. But the problem was that 
the wise virgins were equipped. They were ready for every eventuality. If he came in the daytime, fine. If he came at dusk, fine. If he came as he does in the parable at midnight, oh, the wise are right, but the foolish aren't. Why? Because they have not prepared themselves for the midnight arrival. So when the cry went up, the bridegroom is here, they went out, and so did their lamps. Because, you see, they had minimal oil. Now, my big, I suppose one would say, my big burden and desire is that the church be filled with the Spirit of God so that our understanding, our passion, our holiness of life, our perspectives are all clear and we are ready, whether it's morning, noon or night, when the Lord returns. Because, you see, the light went out in their lamps. And that sort of connects with the woeful statement of Jesus in the previous chapter when he said, many will fall away. Many will look as though they are believers, will say they're believers, but really in actual fact, they have no spirit of God operative within them. They may have had in the past. They know the routine. They know the usage of phrases. They may even know scriptures intellectually and by memory. They may have at one stage loved God, but because of the increased iniquity in the world, because of the love of lesser things, they have become cool and then cold and then irresolute. That is, they're not as dedicated as they were and so when the cry goes up, or if you want to use Paul's words in Thessalonians, when the trumpet is sounded, they rise, but they don't know where to go because their lights have gone out. And of course, they do what everybody does. Can you lend me? Can you help me? But it's too vital for the wise. They say, no, you've got to get your own oil. So this is a remarkable and graphic parable, and it's the first parable in a series of a number of parables in this 25th chapter. And then we have, of course, from verse 14 down to verse 30, another very, very serious parable that Jesus tells. And he's talking very energetically about the fact that to each believer is given gifts, or the ancient word is talents. And those are giftings into our life that we must develop and we must multiply, we must exploit, is not the nicest of words, but we must develop, I think that's a better word, we must learn to develop our spirituality. We must grow in grace. The key word being grow. 
We must grow in knowledge. The key word, grow. We must develop. We must begin to walk further on and keep walking in the purposes, the plan, and in ever-increasing strides in the Lord, walking in the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the knowledge of the Word of God. And as we walk, obeying the things of God and yielding to God on every level. I'm sure that's you. That's why you're listening to the podcast. And of course, there's a day of accountability when all these servants that have been given these gifts and talents have to come back before the master and say, well, this is what we did and this is how we utilized what you gave and this is how we developed and this is the fruit. So there will be a day of accounting. And we know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls it the day where the judgment seat of Christ is there, and each and every one of us will give an account of the deeds done in this body. Not in order to be saved, because we're saved by grace, but we are rewarded by our diligence and our giving of our lives as part of the body of Christ. Not living for self, not living according to the dictates of the flesh, but living according to the will and the purposes of God as revealed in the book of God. And you know, there's pretty harsh treatment for those that wasted their lives. In fact, banishment. It is possible that you can start in the spirit and peter out in the flesh. And finally, even just be going through the motions without the emotion and without the promotion and without cooperation with the Holy Ghost. Oh, I pray that won't be your experience, and I do pray that it won't be mine. We want to walk in love. We want to walk in the spirit. We want to walk in the knowledge of the word. We want to walk in truth. We want to yield ourselves to the purposes of God. And there are times when we think, is it worth it? Well, I can tell you on that great day when when you're standing before the Lord and he is crowning you and blessing you and adding to you things that you may have been denied on this earth, but you will be handsomely repaid. The glory of the Lord will be yours. And I know that probably won't mean much to you, but I want to tell you something else. You will be admired and you will be honored for eternity. And you, because of your humility, are saying, well, I don't do it for admiration. No, but don't you realize that they're going to be admiring the grace, the mercy, and the goodness of God in your life? The Lord will get the glory, but you certainly will be blessed. And then verse 31, and this is where we come to a conclusion today, but verse 31 of Matthew chapter 25 says, 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Wow, what do you think about that? And all the nations will be gathered before him. You know, there's personal judgment. There is the judgment seat of Christ for believers, and that is for rewards and for the lives that we've lived and the ministries we've fulfilled, the sacrifices we made and the attitudes of our heart when we made those sacrifices. And then there's the judgment of the nations. And it is true, it's not mentioned very often. But the Bible says that the nations will be gathered before him. And again, there will be a separation of the nations. The nations will be separated in two between, symbolically, the goats and the sheep. Now, the sheep will be on his right hand and the goats on his left. Is there significance in that? Well, the right hand is the right hand of authority and power. And they will be divided. And what constitutes a goat nation? And what constitutes a sheep nation? A sheep nation is one that has, for one reason or another, and it may not always be because that nation was founded on the word of God and had a revelation of God, but the nation that is a sheep nation is one that has honored Israel and blessed Israel and sometimes hasn't thought of the biblical issues and the ramifications of the Bible, the promises that come to individuals and to nations who bless Israel. But they've done it because it was the right thing to do. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When were you to us a stranger and we looked after you, clothed you? Uh, when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Would you notice that word that you did it to one of the least, the least, the least, the least? Do you know that's a secret that is revealed? Because back in Deuteronomy, you will hear God saying through Moses to Israel, 
I called you as a nation, not because you were the greatest, not because you were the most powerful or the most numerical. I called you because you were the least. Ah, that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I took you where nobody even knew you existed. And I planted you in the land because I wanted to show that little is much when God is in it. And so I took you away from the nations where you were and I've set my love upon you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, for you were the least of all peoples. Now, many people use this scripture in Matthew 25 to talk about humanitarian aid. They say, you know, the least of Africa, the least of the Middle East, the least of China, the least of, and so on, where they're starving and where there are people that are subjected to all kinds of privation. We should, on the basis of Jesus' words, go out for those people. Now, that's commendable. No one's denying that. I believe in that. But that's part of the cause of missions. This prophecy is how nations supported and stood with Israel in dark times. And the goat nations are the ones that didn't. So when Jesus comes again, he will be glorified in his children, both Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, and they will honor and glorify him and bless him at his coming for all that he has done in their lives. But there will be a whale going up a mourning that will go up in nations that were opposed to God's people and God's purposes in his people, Israel. And would you believe there will be an equal cry for those that had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. I'll see you again next time when we open up the Scriptures Share this podcast with friends. People want to hear the Word of God.